0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. The thing that really is hard to then assimilate or work out or take on board is the relationship between that cognitive or information processing side of minimal cognition and the question of uh, where felt experience exists, where subjective experience exists, or or consciousness in that very broad sense of the word consciousness that we're talking about. I think that it is almost inevitable that we will wind up with a gradualist view of experience itself as a feature of the world. And what I mean by that is it came into existence gradually uh, in the evolution of animals, there must have been animals in the evolutionary past for whom it's not quite true that they were having experience or were conscious or, or had felt experience, but it's not quite true that they weren't either. They they have a kind of gray area or marginal or borderline case. That must have been true in the past, I think. I think that's a pretty much inevitable consequence of a Darwinian take on these things,
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this animal studies channel is generally animal rights. I'm talking today with Peter Godfrey Smith. Peter is a professor in the School of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney, He's the author of the best-selling Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness, which has been published in more than 20 languages. His other books include Theory and Reality, An Introduction to the Philosophy of Science, and Darwinian Populations and Natural Selection, which won the 2010 Lakados Award. Peter's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2020's Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind, published by Farrer, Strauss, and Gouraud. Dip below the ocean's surface, and you are soon confronted by forms of life that could not seem more foreign to our own. Sea sponges, soft corals, and serpulid worms, whose rooted bodies, intricate geometry, and flower-like appendages are more reminiscent of plant life or even architecture than anything recognizably animal. Yet these creatures are our cousins. As fellow members of the animal kingdom, the Metazoa, they can teach us much about the evolutionary origins of not only our bodies, but also our minds. In his acclaimed 2016 book, Other Minds, the philosopher and scuba diver Peter Godfrey Smith explored the mind of the octopus, the closest thing to an intelligent alien on Earth. In Metazoa, Godfrey Smith expands his inquiry to animals at large investigating the evolution of subjective experience with the assistance of far-flung species. As he delves into what it feels like to perceive and interact with the world as other life forms do, Godfrey Smith shows that the appearance of the animal body, well over half a billion years ago, was a profound innovation that set life upon a new path. In accessible, riveting prose, he charts the ways that subsequent evolutionary developments, eyes that track, for example, and bodies that move through and manipulate the environment, shaped the subjective lives of animals. Following the evolutionary paths of a glass sponge, soft coral, banded shrimp, octopus, and fish, then moving on to land and the world of insects, birds, and primates like ourselves, Metazoa gathers their stories together in a way that bridges the gap between mind and matter, addressing one of the most vexing philosophical problems, that of consciousness. Combining vivid animal encounters with philosophical reflections and the latest news from biology, MetaZoa reveals that even in our high-tech AI-driven times, there's no understanding our minds without understanding nerves, muscles, and active bodies. The story that results is as rich and vibrant as life itself. Welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So, Uh, First off, I just wanted to begin by congratulating you on writing a a wonderful and fascinating book. You set yourself a very large goal to recount the history of the animal branch of the tree of life and at the same time also sketching out a picture of the emergence of consciousness and you succeeded. So bravo, job well done. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, training, and the focus of your work. Sure.
1: I'm a philosopher by profession. That's, that's, that's my day job. Uh, my qualifications are in, are in philosophy. I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and did an undergraduate degree there, then went to the US uh, to do a PhD and ended up staying in the US for much longer than I expected, for several decades, teaching at Stanford and Harvard and the CUNY Graduate Center all in philosophy. I became intensely interested in evolution and in biological matters more generally. But my home discipline is philosophy, and I think I do look at everything through a philosophical lens. Around 10 years ago, I began to spend a lot more time in the sea, uh, in the water. I was coming back to Australia a bit more often and in one particular marine reserve near Sydney, I began spending a lot of time. And there began to encounter the animals that are described in the first book, Other Minds, uh, giant cuttlefish and then octopuses. And that that led to this new long-term project, the, the project of, of using interactions with animals in the sea as part of an attempt to synthesize philosophical and scientific material to get a sense of what the history of not just animal life, but the history of the mind in evolutionary terms might look like. So your book does two
0: things. On the one hand, it outlines some of the main contours in the history of the evolution of Metazoa, which is the branch of the tree of life that we call animals. Let's start there. Can you explain to us what types of creatures fall under the classification of Metazoa?
1: Well, as you say, it's the animals. And although it's tempting to firstly think of animals by means of paradigm cases like humans and horses and birds and things like that, it's a much bigger group. Uh, sponges are animals for example those are probably the most unlikely cases the cases where they look least animal-like from the point of view of our usual intuitions and habits of mind but 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 they are animals they are animals because they're on the tree they're on that part of the tree Uh, all of life forms a large tree structure or not exactly a tree in some places more of a, a more complicated network than a tree, but a network that is comprised of ancestor-descendant relationships, relations of, of, of parenthood and offspringhood, basically, a genealogical network. And one branch of that tree, one very large branch of the total tree or network, which appeared as a tiny bud at some you know, at, at some time we don't really know about yet. So it it was certainly in the vicinity of six, seven, eight hundred million years ago. A tiny bud appeared and through successive branches gave rise to a large group of living things, including the paradigm cases of animals like ourselves and birds, but also sponges and anemones and bryozoans and all sorts of somewhat more surprising cases. So the metazoa are just all of the descendants of the branching event on the tree that led to the cluster of things that we typically call animals, plus all their relatives in genealogical terms, plus all the things that are that evolved on the same branch at different times. So it's a big, it's a big branch of the family tree. It's a big branch and it's,
0: it's our branch. And one of the things that your book does that's so fascinating is it goes back to the beginning or to very early in the process. And it shows us who our common ancestor is. And then it, it walks us progressively up towards the present towards humans and shows how different evolutionary adaptations kind of caught and then were inherited by future generations. So as noted, your book gives a general 10,000 foot overview of the main innovations that took place during the 650 or so million years of the evolution of animals. But your book's focus goes beyond that to zero in on the mind-body problem. We think we have scientists, we think we have a pretty good understanding of how bodies evolved and worked, but the mind is less clear. You use terms such as experience, consciousness, felt, experience, sensation, subjectivity. All of these are somewhat nebulous. So to get us started, could you talk to us briefly about this
1: mind-body problem? And, and what is it about that that's so intriguing? Sure. The The term mind encompasses a a lot of stuff, um, including some things that are fairly readily explained or at least explainable, things that don't look too puzzling from a biological point of view. So sensory perception, just being able to track what's going on around you using the senses doesn't look too baffling biologically, and it makes sense that animals should be able to do that. The related feature of sensory perception and other aspects of what we do that has been taken to pose a big problem is the felt side, the fact that it feels like something to do these things, the fact that there's a kind of center of experience that we each are or that it feels like we are with our distinctive point of view, with our ability to react to things positively or negatively, good and bad events. It's the felt side of our lives as animals that has seemed hard to fit into a purely physical, chemical, biological picture. Now, the, the language that gets used to pick out this problematic side varies and I often think can be a little, mis, a little bit misleading in various ways. In, in contemporary discussion, if you, if you read philosophical work and also scientific work, on this felt side of things, the word consciousness is the word most commonly used. So people will ask, you know, where did consciousness come from? Can consciousness fit into the physical world? Or how does it fit into the physical world? Can it fit into a purely physical world? Or must there be more in the universe that is a basis for consciousness? Which animals are conscious? Is a flea conscious? Is a plant conscious outside the animals? And so on. That's That's the way the question is often posed. It wasn't always posed that way. And I think of this way of posing it or framing it as problematic in some ways, because at least to my ears, the word consciousness always suggests something quite sophisticated. You know, if you ask whether a fly or a flea is conscious, to me, it feels like you're asking whether there's a little, you know, here I am. Not, not just some kind of sensation, but something sort of reflective and uh, very sort of ego-involving, perhaps, in the animal that you're asking about. And that's not what people mean, and that's not taken to be the most basic kind of question you're asking when people ask about the evolution of consciousness. Uh, Thomas Nagel, decades ago, said that what he regards as the big problem, and also describes using the word conscious, is the fact that there's something it's like to be you or me, or presumably a, a cat or a dog. There's there's something it's like in the sense that there's something it feels like to be a being of that kind. And the word consciousness is now often just used for that feature. An animal is conscious if there's something it feels like to be it. I find this a little bit misleading because It says that if you have just the faintest kind of wash of sensation or the faintest kind of um, subjective registration of uh, pleasure or pain or stress, alarm, anything like that, any kind of feeling at all suffices for consciousness. That's the way people are now talking, and I, you know, you, you can't worry too much about terminology. So I don't mind if during this conversation we we proceed that way. But that is the, you know, the most fundamental question here, and the question that is sharpest and particularly interesting within a evolutionary worldview, within an evolutionary framework, is how can the processes characteristic of living activity, how can the sorts of things that go on in cells, that then go on in bodies once cells come together to form large multicelled bodies, how can those sorts of physical, chemical, biological goings-on be enough to bring it about that for some beings it feels like something to be, that being or those beings? How, how can those biological processes be enough to bring felt experience into the world? That's what I think of as the mind-body problem in its most focused form, uh, also a form that is specifically set up to make these evolutionary questions and these questions about origins especially salient. So that's, that's the question I would most like to, to, to answer.
0: So I think that in your answer, you were kind of dancing around a little bit. My next question, which concerns minimal cognition, and in fact, I think this may be the most illuminating aspect of your book, is the way that you sort of attempt to trace cognition and perhaps consciousness, again, I know these terms are nebulous, but push that back as far as we're able to speculatively so could you talk to us a little bit about minimal cognition what do we mean when we use that term
1: sure I'm glad you found that part of the that part of the book illuminating because I found it especially difficult and towards the end of the book I felt at several points that I was not fully resolving the questions I was able to sketch possibilities and and express some hunches and and bets and things like that but w- without giving a resolution of in particular one aspect of the problem of minimal cognition. okay so let, let's let's go through it a bit. Minimal cognition is a term that is sometimes a bit controversial now but I, I think it's all right uh, that refers to, the most basic, the most simple forms of a collection of capacities that are certainly cognition once they're present in more complicated forms, but have these very, very simple, minimal, and presumably early evolving forms as well. So those capacities include sensing, tracking what's going on by means of some sensory machinery, whether it be chemical sensing, or sensing light, or movement, or something like that, sensing, producing some appropriate or adaptive response to what you sense. So being able to adjust your activities in a way, uh, in some way that is adaptive or appropriate from a biological point of view, in response to what you sense. So tracking what's going on and producing a, a an appropriate response to what's going on. Also included in minimal cognition, empirically, including included in some of the very simple cases, is something like a very minimal form of memory. So even bacteria, which are able to orient themselves and uh, proceed up and down gradients, chasing more welcome and more unwelcome. Chemicals, for example, even bacteria who are doing this kind of tracking of what's going on and responding have, in some cases, the ability to make a comparison between what's happening now and what happened a a second or so ago. They're able to make a comparison between present and immediate past in a way that enables them to work out whether things are improving or or getting worse from the, the bacterium's point of view. All all of this counts as minimal cognition, sensing, responding, and optionally, but very commonly, some ability to use past experience as well as present experience as a guide to what to do next. Uh, Plants are able to track what the sun is doing, how much light they've been receiving recently, where water is, and so on. All of these things count as minimal cognition. Now, in describing one part of it a couple of seconds ago, I used the word experience. I said the the organism is able to make a comparison between better and worse events in its experience. And that word there brings in the aspect of the questions about minimal cognition that I find especially hard and, again, was, was, was not able to entirely resolve in, in Metazoa. Here is what I have in mind. If you take something like sensing or something like memory or something like acting in response to what you sense, those things shade off or grade off from complicated forms in us through simpler forms in various kinds of neurally simple animals into these minimal, minimal, barely present forms in single-celled organisms, in in plants, and so on. So there's a kind of... In, in, and you can think of this as the information processing side of minimal cognition. There's a kind of very minimal information processing going on in all cellular life, including plants and bacteria and so on. Okay, that I think is is surprising and interesting it's not what we perhaps would have expected to learn 50 years ago especially about the single-celled cases i guess the plant cases were always were always conspicuous in some form but the idea that this is this is present in all cellular life is really is very surprising but it's not too hard to take on board it's just it's just the way things have have turned out to be The thing that really is hard to then assimilate or work out or take on board is the relationship between that cognitive or information processing side of minimal cognition and the question of uh, where felt experience exists, where subjective experience exists or, or consciousness in that very broad sense of the word consciousness that we're talking about. I think that it is almost inevitable that we will wind up with a gradualist view of experience itself as a feature of the world. And what I mean by that is it came into existence gradually uh, in the evolution of animals. There must have been animals in the evolutionary past for whom it's not quite true that they were having experience or were conscious or, or had felt experience. But it's not quite true that they weren't either. They, they have a kind of gray area or marginal or borderline case. That must have been true in the past, I think. I think that's a pretty much inevitable consequence of a Darwinian take on these things. And if we look around us in the present at various neurally simpler animals, various arthropods and mollusks and perhaps annelid worms and all sorts of invertebrate animals, including ones that are quite familiar to us, there will probably be the same sorts of partial or borderline or gray area cases there as well. So the presence of experience, I think, of something that uh, almost inevitably will be found in partial shading-off forms around us now. And that then gets us to the question that I would, that, that I, I, I think of myself as being a bit uncertain about it at certain stages in the book Metazoa, which is, is the kind of gradient that takes us from more complicated through simpler to very minimal cases with respect to minimal cognition, is that also a gradient that takes us through more complex? through borderline or partial, sorry, through simpler to then borderline or partial or barely present or not really present, but something like present cases on the side of experience. So is there a sort of simple mapping between the cognitive side and the experiential side that extends all the way down into the things that I'm talking about as minimal cognition? That's the question that I, uh, it's in some ways the question I sort of came back to most often. Well, that plus one other, I came back to most often as a so- source of uncertainty when writing Metazoa. And the view I ended up with, ended up expressing in the last chapter, well, I, I don't want to give too much away, but was a view that denied the simplest kind of relationship or expressed doubts about the simplest kind of relationship between the the sort of multidimensional gradient that is what relates us on one side to minimal cases of cognition on the other and the multidimensional gradient that I think must be present with respect to experience as well. To put that very simply... One consequence this has is that I don't think that bacteria who do have minimal cognition, I don't think we have to think that they have a sort of minimal kind of sensation as a simple consequence of that. I think the relationship between the two can be less direct.
0: So you walk us, your book walks us through various stages of the biological kingdom of Metazoa. And you begin with simple sponges, then we progress through coral, shrimp, octopus, fish, dinosaur, mammals, leading up to humans. And the point you are not making is that there's a a natural progression towards the definitive final form, but you're telling the story from the perspective of humans, which we are, and that's why we follow this path. So I know that the octopus, I was hoping you could tell us about at least one of these stages, and I know the octopus is close to your heart, as you covered them in your previous book, Other Minds. So could you talk to us a bit about octopus and just give us a brief picture of kind of the light they shed on the evolution of animals, some of the stages that had been reached by the time we get to octopus?
1: Firstly, just a couple of other comments. So I'm I'm glad you emphasized that there's not a kind of scale here with an evolutionary process that's naturally heading towards us as a kind of culmination or the most advanced state or something like that. I think that that is an important thing and it's important to emphasize it uh, you know, over and over again, because people naturally fall into that kind of hierarchical or ladder-based view of evolution quite naturally. I think the right image to have in one's mind is the image of a tree where we're at the top of the tree because we're alive now, but all sorts of other animals alive now are also at the top. The top is just the living, and um, we're all related to each other through common ancestry. We've all explored different ways of being an animal, uh, different lifestyles, different kinds of bodies, and so on. I, th- I think it is important to to, to stay with that image uh, as you did just just now. Right, the octopus. Uh, the octopus, as you as you say, very dear to my heart. I I think they're just amazing animals. Um, it's so good that they exist. If they didn't exist, it would have been necessary to try to imagine them, and I don't know if we would have succeeded. There are several things that make them important. One is the fact that they are such neurally and behaviorally complex animals that are so far from us on the tree. They're not as far from us as some of the others you mentioned, such as sponges and anemones, but they're very far from us. Uh, they We shared a common ancestor with octopuses. Uh, something like, well, the, the figure I, I, I give in both Other Minds and Metazoa is around 600 million years ago. That figure might be being pushed a little bit you know, slightly more recent, 575, 560, something like that. Uh, but that's that's the kind of numbers we're talking about here. They shared a common ancestor with us way back early in the history of animal life. And many of the invertebrate animals that are on their part of the tree, they have fairly simple nervous systems in, in many cases, oysters, clams, scallops, slugs and snails, and so on. And then you have this extraordinary thing, which is a invertebrate animal with half a billion neurons, with these extraordinary capacities for the production of complex behaviors, with also something I think that is particularly interesting, a kind of attentive and curious orientation in some cases, certainly in some species, to what's going on around them. An interest in novelty An exploratory mode of interaction with things. So, one thing we get from the octopus is the lesson that all those things can evolve on a, a line, an evolutionary line, far from us. You don't have to be like us to be complex in those ways. You can be far from us and very different from us in organization. The list of features that we share with them and that very likely evolved independently on their line that the list of commonalities that are not due to the presence of that feature in a shared ancestor is getting longer and longer and, and more and more intriguing just just last week there was a new paper on sleep in octopuses and it's It's part of a series, a number of, you know, there's a cluster of papers that are looking at sleep and uh, especially active forms of sleep in cephalopods, the idea of an alteration as in humans between a quiet mode of sleep and a more active mode of sleep. So the active mode in humans is, is REM, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is associated especially with dreaming. And there's some work on cuttlefish that suggests the possibility of this dreamlike experience being present in their active mode of sleep. The new octopus paper looks at the alternation between these two modes of sleep in more detail than before. And I find it just astonishing that within animal evolution, you know, we've got two choices here. Either the common ancestor of us and an octopus had an alternation between active and quiet or low activity modes of sleep. And that would have been a little tiny worm living all those hundreds of millions of years ago, leading a very, very simple life. I doubt that that's true. So instead you have the independent, the separate evolution of what looks like a rather quirky feature of our lives in cephalopods. So you have these similarities uh, where the, the, the sleep Related similarities, uh, recent ones coming to light. And then you have enormous differences. You have the fact that octopuses are not like us in all sorts of ways. The nervous system design is totally different. They have to produce complex actions that are not scaffolded on hard parts, limbs, as you have in us, and also a lot of other behaviorally complex animals, such as insects. You have a nervous system that is mostly not present in the head itself, but spread through the body. More than half of the neurons are in the upper part of the arms, spread through the arms. So all kinds of questions about selfhood and control are raised by the different way that the control systems are organized in an octopus. Those are some of the things that make them so interesting. The fact that everything that is touched is tasted, the fact that there seems to be light sensitivity across uh, the whole body, across all of the skin, When we imagine what it would be like to be one, we have to imagine a profoundly different sensory world in some ways. But they're also very visual animals. They have good eyes like us. They have independently evolved a a, a camera design eye. They have this curiosity as we do. They have the two modes of sleep as we do. There's just an amazing, uh, I think, endlessly interesting combination of similarities and differences.
0: One of the things I've I've been trying to convey, and I, I struggle, I don't really have the language, but one of the things about your book that I found so extraordinary is the way that at each stage of the process, you introduce new adaptations that have evolved. And we see these carrying through. And for example, in in the octopus, and I know it's not perfectly linear because the octopus has branched off, but in the octopus, we see a creature that does seem to have some centralized intelligence which is located in I you know I believe what we would call the head. And then in fish, one of the things I found so riveting in your book was you just you sort of say to the reader, like in fish, the intelligence has moved into the head. And I had never thought of it like that <laughs> that the the fully unified individual um, that of course we fee- we perceive ourselves to be is also clearly located in the fish. And you explain why this was a natural adaptation based on their body structure and the world that they live in. But um, extremely riveting stuff. And we, you give us this throughout the entire course of the history. And, and that is how you really, I, I think you really convey a powerfully various stages, not the entire continuum of the process, but various important important stages.
1: I should say, just just to interject slightly, there's a complication with fish, which I think we should should have on the table. Fully unified is too strong a, a, a term to use here because of the role of only partial connection between the left and right sides of the brain in fish. Um, so as exactly as you said, in the once we get to vertebrates, the fish design is a more centralized design neurally than octopuses and um, arthropods, you know insects and crustaceans and the like. And the idea of a big brain sitting between the eyes in a head, the, the fish set us down that road and and birds and primates, their descendants, uh, more dramatic instances of that. But in many vertebrate animals, including fish, you have this big brain in the head, centralized, a decentralized design in one sense, but what looks like rather limited connection often between left and right sides. Uh, a lot of animals, including familiar animals like fish and reptiles and to some extent birds, are a little bit like split brain patients in humans who have a surprisingly limited amount of information flow between left and right. So the, I mean, this is, it suggests so many intriguing things that there is, I think, a kind of a trend, not globally, but in some parts of the tree towards more integration of control in animals, in, in their nervous systems where, you know, us sitting here with these great big outsized brains encased in a skull and limbs controlled by it are one outcome of that. There has been a trend in that direction, but with lots of quirks and fits and starts and side branches and different ways of doing it and, and partial cases, and the kind of hidden disunity that seems to be present in a lot of vertebrate animals that has to do with left versus right relationships is, is, is one of those complications
0: hearing you talk about your book it's it seems to me that when you write a book like this you you kind of ha- have it both ways in, in a good way and what i mean by that is in cases where there are similarities it's interesting and in cases where there are not similarities it's interesting yeah so you had yeah. you know you talked about the fish if the fish had been completely unified that would have been interesting but they have they have some something of a split brain that's also interesting and you also talked about rem in the octopus or, or different brain wave structures or activities in the octopus. And if that is not traced back to the common ancestor, that is interesting. However, to me, if it turns out that that is traced back to the common ancestor, that is also very
1: interesting. That would be amazing too. Yeah. Right. That would be amazing too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So yeah, when we, when we, travel backwards in time and and we examine these things. It it really is incredibly fascinating and your book is incredibly fascinating. So Peter, thank you so much. Um, To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us?
1: Yes, certainly. Um, We've, we've talked about, I mean, I think one reason why the conversation took the, Took the uh, path that did is the fact that I find myself coming to repeatedly to the questions I'm thinking about at the moment. And two of those are how to think in more detail about the gradual side of the evolutionary history and the fact that there have to be these intermediate or partial cases, what Dan Dennett refers to as sort of hemi demi semi cases. Hemi demi semi sentience, in a sense, there, ha- there have to be such things both in our past and around and probably around us now. How to understand subjective experience as something that can truly exist in degrees, in that sense. I just finished a paper that's my longest attempt to sort of push ahead a little way on that. I've also just finished a paper on the questions we were just discussing now concerning lateralization, left. Brain right brain relationships in animals, and the relationship between the very unusual surgically imposed condition of split brain that uh, is is present in some humans. Incidentally, though, there are some there are some humans who are naturally born with much restricted connection between left and right it's not only a surgically imposed a surgically imposed con- condition but it mostly is in humans so you've got that on the human case and then you've got the fact that a lot of animals including fish and birds and reptiles have quite limited connections between left and right too i was very surprised to learn that the corpus callosum, the big connector in our brains, is not present in kangaroos. It's not present in marsupials. Uh, It's only present in what are called Eutherian or placental mammals. Uh, As someone who lives not surrounded by kangaroos, but who comes across them from time to time in Australia, that that was quite surprising to me. So those are some of the things I'm thinking about. And there will be a third book. Uh, There'll be a third book in the series which has been delayed a bit by difficulties of travel during the COVID pandemic, but is definitely in the works. And it will be more about us, more about land animals, and also it will have quite a lot about how I think that we should relate, how we should relate to other animals and how we should think about our place on the, in the earth as a whole.
0: Well, I very much look forward to that book, and uh, perhaps we could discuss it when it comes out. I, I don't envy you having to work through all of these tricky problems because they're they're not easy. I think one of the challenges that we humans face is it's very difficult for us to imagine any type of mindset other than our own. And um, it, it is hard. It is hard, just as it is hard to imagine a, a four-dimensional space. Right. So, um yeah. Very impressive that you're working on it and I, I, I do look forward to that book.
1: Well, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. i'm I'm delighted that you enjoyed the book. Also glad that we talked about some of the the really hard stuff, the the issues that are quite unresolved, hard to resolve. So uh, it was a pleasure.
0: Well that some of the hard stuff is some of the most interesting stuff, although not all of it everything everything in your book is interesting. Well, Peter, thank you for writing this wonderful book and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you.
1: A pleasure for me too. Thanks.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Peter Godfrey Smith about his 2020 book, Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind. It's a deeply informative and illuminating work. I hope that you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode... And for all my episodes, it's composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.